It is good to be with you this morning, and want to lead us in prayer right after we say, read our opening scripture, but we, in our prayer, we want to remember our neighboring community, Port Royal, that was hit hard with the uh, tornado that I understand came through, and the, I'm being told the Parkers uh, lost most of their warehouse store, but the community rallied and helped them get it done, and that's what it's all about. And there are others that need that prayer. So let's read our opening scripture, and then we'll have our word of prayer. If you'd follow along with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Pray with me. Our most precious Heavenly Father, we do give you all praise. Lord, we give you adoration. You are the supreme creator. You hold the universe in your hands. You sustain it by your word. And you sent your son Jesus to come and minister to us, to show us the way, and to die on the cross for us. Lord, he is supreme, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And we give him praise. Lord, we do lift up those uh, in our community impacted by this storm, praying that you will comfort them, strengthen them, encourage them. Thank you for the community, Lord, coming to their rescue and help. Thank you for fine people that do that. And Lord, everyone that was touched and impacted, we ask your presence with helping them. Lord, those who are dealing with illness and sickness in the family. We pray for them. We lift them up. Lord, those who have had a loss, we pray for them. Lord, we unite our prayers together through the power of the Holy Spirit, lifting them up to you as a sweet-smelling sacrifice on their behalf. Through your Holy Spirit, may you impress upon them at this time that they are being mentioned in prayer and strengthen through that. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our study 
on selflessness, on loving one another today. And the foundation of love and loving one another is to know and understand the love shown to us. It is from that love shown to us that we should find the strength and the grace and the power to love others. 1 John 4:19 is just a short little verse, but it's powerful like so many of the verses are. We love him because he first loved us. Too often we can think that God loves us because we did something, because we loved Him, because we did something for Him, and we don't realize that He loved us before we even thought about Him. He woke us up from a spiritual deadness so that we could hear His voice, so that we could respond, so that we could have fellowship with Him. He did all that because He loved us, and because He loved us, we love Him. In this passage we just read, Paul teaches us the depths of God's love. He teaches us the authority of Jesus Christ, and he teaches us the love imparted on us by the Father and the Son. If we look again at these verses, it starts out looking at the position Jesus holds in the Trinity. He is the image of God. He is that, his appearance is that representation of the Almighty God. He is over all creation. It says He is the firstborn of all creation, and that doesn't mean that He was born as we are born. It really points to His supremacy, His preeminence, that He is the head. Much as a firstborn in a family, my brother used to always like to tell me that He was, he was number one. And me being number four would remind him that the Bible says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so uh, he didn't like that too much, but uh, you couldn't argue with Scripture. But Jesus is that firstborn. He is over all creation. It tells us he is the head of the body. You are the body here at Campbellsburg Baptist Church. There are other local bodies spread around our world and even our community at this hour worshiping. And he is head over each and every body and over the body of Christ, the church of God. He is fully God. He's not, he's not a, uh, uh, just another creation. He is God. He was with God in the beginning. John 1 tells us that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things came by Him and through Him. He was present with God in eternity. He was present at creation, and creation came through him. So then Paul, after outlining who Jesus is, and that's so critical, that's so important, when we come to worship, we must be sure we establish who he is, that he is the Almighty God, that we are his servants, we are his children. And so Paul does that, and then he goes on, and he reminds us that originally we were alienated from him. Because of our sin nature, we could not have a relationship. We could not have fellowship with our God because God cannot abide where sin abides. And so before the dawn of time, God started a plan to reconcile us. We were alienated from God. 
We were at enmity with Christ. That means we were literally enemies of Christ, seeking our way, not His way. We have an outstanding debt of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We stand before God with a debt upon us, and that debt is death. But we have a sure hope of eternal life. Those that accept His redeeming work, those who uh, follow Him uh, in baptism and make Him Lord of their lives, those who live that life as a Christian can know right now that they have eternal life in heaven awaiting them. It's like knowing that you're going to go on a, on a great trip. You're not leaving yet, but you know it's going to be wonderful and you can't wait to see it. That's what heaven is like. It is a sure hope, not something we have to worry about. It is guaranteed. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit into that life. So we have this picture here where we have Jesus Christ, the supreme authority over creation, who died for our sins, who made that price. And we have us who originally were at enmity with Him, were estranged from Him, were apart from Him. And this Christian life we enter into takes us from selfishness to selflessness. A lot of issues in there. It takes us from selfishness, where we seek our own will, where we seek what we want, where we seek our way, where we work to watch out for number one, which is me. But Christian journey takes us to a selfless life. Over and over and over, if Jesus had a principal teaching, it is that we would give to others knowing that God gives to us. We love others because He first loved us. We love others because of the strength and knowledge of His love. And so that is what we change from seeking what we desire to what He desires. It's a reorienting of our viewpoint. And that's really what repentance means. Repentance literally means going in one direction and turning and going the other way. It means this seeking of self, seeking what I want, seeking to make me the number one, the most important, and realizing that that is against God's law, realizing that's not satisfactory, and turning and starting to serve Him, accepting His redemption on our behalf. We desire things to be good for us. That's normal. We want good things. It's natural. But when they get in the way, that is the problem. We desire good things. We desire to be respected. We desire to get our way. In James 4, 1 through 3, he addresses this, where he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, but when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So even though we may pray, even though we may ask God for things, in our 
non-Christian state or in our young Christian state, it's still focused on me. Lord, do this for me. Rather than as Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done. So what causes that conflict that James is talking about? It's that insisting that I get what I want. And so often, and I'm sure you've seen this with people, the more we insist on what we want, the more they insist on what they want. It becomes loggerheads, button heads together. And often the way to break that down is to take that position of grace and humility and let them have their way. Graciously let them lead. But that's what causes conflict, especially according to what James says. He says we kill to get what we want, and in extreme cases, people have done that. People have committed murder. They've committed murder for the silliest things that you and I would, would have problems with. It wasn't to, to rob millions of dollars from a bank. I've heard of hobos beating up another hobo just for their supper. Uh, it will, but we're driven by getting what we want. But even if it's not murder in that extreme, we can kill people by killing their reputation, by killing how other people think about them, by besmirching their reputation, as it were, an old word. We desire what others have, coveting. We've talked about this recently. This coveting causes jealousy, envy, and dissensions between believers. And we seek God's favor for the wrong reasons. We're not seeking what He wants to do. We're seeking him to give us what we want to do. Great study by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. And, and, and it is a, a tremendous study. It's many years old, 30, 40 years old now. Dr. Blackaby's gone to be with the Lord. His son is teaching it. But there's a central theme in there in talking about how we interact with God and what he teaches is that we need to see where God is working and go there. Usually, we are doing something, and it can be a good something. It can be something that needs to be done. But what we do is we have chosen this is what we need to do, and then we say, Lord, bless this. And it may not be what he wants then, what he wants from us. And so we struggle because we don't feel His blessing. We don't sense His power. We don't sense His involvement in that, and we beg and we plead. But the trouble is, we're not following what He wants. It's a square peg and a round hole kind of thing. As we remember that He is Master, we are subject. He is Lord, we are His children. He is the Creator, we are the created. We find where He is working, what He wants to do, who He wants to reach, and we do that. When we do what He wants to do, He's going to empower and bless and help. Coming to Christ, receiving Him as our Savior, means realizing the error of our ways. It means understanding that we're in violation of His commands. And this leads us to repent, to make that turn from wrong to right. It means that we have a nature that seeks rewarding self over all others, and so we need to turn from that. That's that sin nature. Coming to Christ means we acknowledge Him as Lord and Master, 
And because He is Lord and Master, we obey His every command, every moment of the day, or we make that our heart and desire because we do slip and fall. God's recorded what He requires of us. He's had it written down in this Word. As we can read His Word, He's telling us how to live. He's telling us what's important to Him. As He's telling us how we can be blessed if we will read it and absorb it and take it in and believe it and live it. So He's recorded that. And someone has said that God's not going to tell us what He's already written down. I don't know that He's quite that absolute, but it makes sense. If He's already said it, He expects us to know it. Not to go with Him for an open book test or, or, or a secret insight. If He said it in here that He hates something, then it's foolish to say, Lord, bless me in this thing that You've said You hated. He's said it, believe it, live it, That's what he's done. He's recorded it there so that we can know it, but it takes reading it. Coming to Christ, making Him our Savior, means making what He wants what we want. So the question then comes, well, what does Christ want? We can find that in 2 Peter 3.9. Peter's talking to him about the end times coming. People were worried about the Christ coming and they're missing the return, but The Lord said, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So when we think He's lingering, He's delaying, what's taking so long, He's waiting for each person to come to know Him as Savior. When we did the study last week on the end, last quarter on the end times, a theme that kept coming through over and over again was the second chances God gives. He, he gives time after time for people to come to know Him. Jesus said when He came to earth, when He was here 2,000 plus years ago, that He came to His people, to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, desiring that they would accept Him as the Messiah. They had not done that up until this point. And He came preaching to them. And they still rejected Him as Messiah. But as we study the end times, we find that when He returns again, He's going to do a work within them, giving them another opportunity to receive Him as the Messiah, as their Savior. So Jesus wants everyone to change from their sin nature to a God nature. That's what He wants. And He has chosen and commanded His followers to tell that message to others, to make that call to others. We're to do that as individuals. John 15, 16, and 17, very direct and imperative. We talked about that word recently. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. We often think that. We think we're the ones that are making this choice. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you 
This is my command, love one another. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who redeemed us said, you didn't choose me. This wasn't some sandlot baseball game where two captains stand up and said, I'll take him and I'll take Tim and, and this way. Jesus Christ chose us. He wanted us and he chose us. But not more, not just choosing you to be part of the kingdom. He appointed you. He made it your job. He made it your responsibility to go and bear fruit. And he defines that fruit that will last. So he's not talking about bearing apples or oranges. All that stuff doesn't last. He's talking about making other believers in Christ. And then he follows it with this command, love one another. This is his command to each of his followers. He doesn't make exceptions. None of us can stand before him and say, but, but, but Lord, especially when we think about his sacrifice, what he went through. If anyone faced a tough time, it was our Savior. And he closed with that admonition to love one another, making it clear that telling others about Christ is demonstrating love towards them. It may be a message they don't enjoy hearing. It may be a message they reject. But in your telling them how to have eternal life, how to know a Savior who will abide with them and fill them, instruct them, empower them, help them, and on that day they get their last breath, take them to be with Him in heaven. You're loving them. You're helping them towards a rich life. And so it is an act in love. It's Christ's desire that the church be committed and focused on bringing others to a saving knowledge of Christ. Ephesians 3.10 says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. When Peter, he came to Peter and he said, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Lord, the Christ. And at that moment, Jesus said, upon this rock, this statement of Peter, this affirmation of who Christ is, I will build my church. It's built upon this truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of all mankind. And that's when he established his church. So how do we express this love for others and lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? How do we be less selfish and more selfless? Through love. That's what we've been talking about. Through loving them as the Savior has loved them. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he was often criticized for who he spent time with. What's he doing with publicans and sinners? And of course, that was the wealthy elite that said he ought to be with us. They criticized him for being with the common person, with the common man. But Jesus loved them. He knew their warts there. He knew their failures. He knew them better than they knew themselves. But he loved them. He wanted them as part of his kingdom. And so he spent time with them. 
through loving them as the Savior has loved them. How did he love them? He left the splendor of heaven, a great song. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 talks to us about Jesus. It says, Who being in the very nature God, he was God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he didn't vault it. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I've been playing a little scenario in my head. I've, I've been asked to write a, a devotional on humility. have to work on that. Baptism helped today, humbled me. And I've thought about the Father in heaven saying, Jesus, I want you to go down and redeem our people. And Jesus says, great, Lord. You want me to do a, 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 a number 50 where I ride down on the champion stallion. I got all the angels behind me and we're smoting all the evildoers. And God says, no, no, no. That's not how we're going to do it. Well, do you want me to strike them dead with a plague, God? No, Jesus, what I want you to do I want you to leave heaven. I want you to become a little baby. And I want you to grow up like one of them. I want you to know the struggles that they face in life. You're going to teach them for a while, but then as you start teaching them, they're going to reject you. The religious leaders will fight you tooth and nail. And in the end, they're going to convict you wrongly of a crime, they're going to beat you with a whip, and they're going to hang you on a cross until you're dead. And what did Jesus say? Yes, Father, I'll do that. I'll do that for them. That's His love. If Jesus had remained in heaven, He would have been selfish. If He had refused on giving up the splendor of heaven, it would have been selfish. If he had insisted on coming on that beautiful heavenly stallion with angels brandishing swords, he'd have been acting selfishly. No, he humbled himself. Born as that child, living life as we know it, teaching people, and eventually suffering rejection, torture, crucifixion on the cross. Humbled as a criminal before everyone watching. That is selfless behavior, and that's what we're to emulate. Today's passage from the love chapter, we call it 1 Corinthians 13, 5 through 7, says, it does not dishonor others, talking about love. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. To show love to others, we honor them, not ourselves. We seek what they need, not what we want or need. We are patient and forgiving. We act for the benefit of others persistently. In our community just right around us. Not a populous community. But in our community we have people who are hurting. 
We have people who are hungry. We are people hoping for a friend. Where are they to find it? The world doesn't care about them. The church is supposed to. And that's what God calls us to. We have people bound for hell because they haven't received Jesus Christ as Savior. James says, to he who knows what is right to do and does not do it, it is sin. So if we obey God, what's the outcome? He tells us in Malachi 3, starting at verse 10, the Lord Almighty, our Creator, the Supreme God, challenges us. He says, test me in this. He wants us to test Him. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there won't be room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So first he promises great fruit for our efforts. That's a blessing in itself. Then he says we will receive honor and respect from others, which at the core is what we really desire. So the question comes to us, do we believe what God says? If we believe what He says, then we'll obey because we know He is true to His Word. Conversely, if we do not obey what He says, then obviously we don't believe it. We don't believe what He's saying. We don't believe His Word is true. We don't believe He's able to do that. And so the question returns to us, do you believe? 